We're in Mark chapter 14, and we're going to be reading just the first 11 verses, so hopefully we won't get too fatigued from standing as we read from God's Word this morning. It says this, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whatever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in her memory, in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may now be seated. Well, this past Monday, as Dan Chikami already mentioned, we started a class called Issues in Biblical Anthropology. And we're not actually teaching the class. We have an expert who's doing that via online video. And we're meeting upstairs in the conference room over in, they call it Building A, the front building over there. If you weren't with us for our very first session, I'd invite you to come tomorrow if you have no life, have nothing better to do, or are willing to sacrifice anything and everything to be with us. Come. It's at 1130. Uh, We'll have some sandwiches for you, and uh, we will just watch and learn together. It's a great time. If you are not able to be a part of that, you are welcome to watch it online for yourself uh, at your convenience, and I can tell you how to do that a little later. At any rate... The first session was an exploration of several different worldviews, several common different belief systems that people have about what it means to be human. Let's see if any of these sound familiar. The first is this, humanity as mere matter. Humanity is mere matter. There's nothing special about the human race. Who we are is purely accidental, purely accidental, nothing intentional about us, and therefore there's no real right and there's no real wrong way of doing anything. There's no one who's ultimately going to hold you accountable for anything you think or anything that you do. So if it feels good, well, go ahead and do it. And you can see why that might be attractive to some people. You are the most important person in your world. Therefore, self-fulfillment and self-promotion and self-everything is what life is all about. Humanity as mere matter. Second one 
is this. And this is actually one that is becoming more and more prevalent, even though we may not realize it. And it is humanity as a technical project. Humanity is a technical project. And so if humanity is merely the product of some evolutionary process here, then we need to be looking forward to our next stage of development. Well, we've made it this far. We're pretty awesome today. What are we going to be like tomorrow? And people believe that technology is an important piece of this. And human beings are going to attain their next level of of humanness as they interact with, and even as they merge with computers and even robots. You're going to become more fully human as you merge with technology. Technology already has a big impact on our lives, right? Some of you are looking at devices right now. Take a device away from a young person and see what happens. (sighs) Don't do that at my house. Actually, I did it the other day, and it was fascinating to watch. It's incredible. We become dependent on technology, there are people who believe that by using technology, by, we're actually going to grow and we're going to develop. And maybe we're even going to find a way to conquer, put an end to this archaic idea of death. Get rid of it completely. Humans as mere uh, technological project. Thirdly, humanity as an expressive therapeutic being or beings. This is the idea that since there is no higher authority to tell us who we should be, what we should be like, what we should think, then we need to find it in ourselves. And so we need to look deep within ourselves to discover who it is that we really are. And once we discover who it is that we really are, well, then our next task is then to express ourselves We need to let it out. This is how you're fully human. Find who you are and then just get it. Let it gush out of you. Let the whole world know who you are. And then the next step, step three, is to make sure that everyone affirms who you are. Right? And so this is having a dramatic impact on parenting. Once parenting was about raising up children to be what they should be. Right? Not anymore. Now parenting is about helping your children discover their true selves. And then doing everything that you can to help them express who they are. And you better make sure you affirm who they are. Humanity is an expressive, therapeutic being. Two more. Humanity as sexualized beings. Sigmund Freud uh, deserve a lot of credit for this worldview. It's the idea that the most primal urge within each and every one of us is this urge for sexual gratification. And the idea is whatever you are attracted to, whatever that impulse in you pushes you towards, well, that is fundamentally who you most fundamentally are. That's who you are. You are a sexual being, and what your sexual preferences are, well, that is who you are as a person. This is who you are at your core. Finally, the fifth one, humanity as racial beings. 
It's not your desires first and foremost that make you who you most, the most you. It's the color of your skin. And this is where the idea follows that your main mission in life needs to be to recognize how people of your particular skin color have been treated in comparison to people of other skin colors, and then you devote yourself to identifying and then eliminating any disparities between your people and other people that you see. Now, there are elements of truth to each of these worldviews, right? And it's true that we are physical, right? We're not only physical, we're not just physical, but we're not less than physical. We do have substance here. It's true that technology is helpful at times, right? We live in a world that is breaking down. We got rust, we got mold, we got disease, we got decay, we got death, and we've got technology that we have created with the minds that God has given us, and we are helping combat some of these results of living in a world that is experiencing the things that our world is experiencing, right? We have weed be gone. Praise the Lord. This is a good thing. But it's not the only thing. And it's not the ultimate solution, is it? It's true that there's something inside of each and every one of us that that makes us unique. You are not the same. As similar as you may be to the person sitting next to you, you are not the same as that person. And yet we have to recognize that our uniqueness has been impacted by something called sin. And so to just celebrate that uniqueness and say, here I am, world, this is who I am, celebrate, well, we have to say, there's something not right with the uniqueness that is inside of me. I am unique, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but my uniqueness has been impacted, right? It's an incomplete worldview. It's true that we are sexual beings. There's something that our maker has done to us. He has knit into the fabric of our being this this sexual desire, and it's powerful, and it's actually good the way he made it and the way he designed it and the parameters he set for it, but it's been dramatically impacted, right? Dramatically twisted and distorted as we have wandered away from our maker. Finally, we recognize that there are so many injustices in our world. So many awful things have happened to people throughout history based on the color of their skin. It's terrible. It's tragic. We need to recognize it. We need to stand against it. And yet at the same time, we've got to recognize that every one of us is part of a flawed human race one race, and we're all flawed, and we all have faults within us, and each and every one of us needs the forgiveness and the grace and the restoration that is only found in Jesus Christ. And so there are elements of truth in each of these worldviews, and I think that's one of the appeals to them, is you can see how, ah, this, this makes some sense here. There's elements of truth, and yet each of them leads us further and further away from what actually is true and what it actually means to be human. 
In a garden, in the early days of our existence, our parents made a fateful decision to go their own way. We're not, many of us are not unfamiliar with that idea. To determine what was right and wrong for themselves, what was good and bad for themselves. They said no to God. They said yes to themselves. They would make up the rules. They would determine what was best for them. And in doing so, they became less, not more, less than what God had designed them to be. And we live in a world right now where many of us have forgotten what it means to be human. What does that have to do with Mark chapter 14? Mark chapter 14, it takes us to the precipice of the most important event in human history. It's that intersection between creator and creation, the moment that would make it possible for those who have wandered off into warped thinking and bad living, who've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and have forgotten what it means to be truly human. This is where we see the stark contrast between the paths that lead to death and the one that leads to life. And this is where we catch a glimpse of what it looks like to be fully human and found among those who will never be forgotten. Jesus told his followers in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And that is exactly what we see demonstrated here in these 11 verses. Let's take a look. Mark tells us, it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those are two Jewish holidays closely related. They both have to do with the exodus from Egypt. The Passover, of course, celebrates the deliverance of the people of Israel from that final plague, the plague of death that would come over Egypt. And if they took a spotless lamb and they sacrificed it and they put its blood over the doorpost of their house, whoever was within that house would be delivered from this terrible plague. And so they celebrate this. They remember this provision that God gave them to escape this awful thing that was going to befall Egypt. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, well, that commemorates Israel's departure from Egypt. It was long awaited, wasn't it? 400 years they had waited to be free from, from Egypt. But when it came, man, it came. And it was time to go and get out. They didn't have time to even make bread the normal way that they did. So they made unleavened bread quickly, and they got out. And so you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, why does this matter to the discussion here? Well, it matters because the timing of all of this, in where Jesus has been heading, right? We know he's going to the cross. The timing of it all tells us that God planned this out. We step back from the pages of Scripture and we see a grand design for God's timeline. And God lines things up so that even 
the moment where his son, the Lamb of God, the spotless one, the once and for all sacrifice for sinners, that Jesus Christ would be sacrificed when everybody else was sacrificing all of these other lambs. But the one lamb, the final lamb, would be sacrificed them then. God's plan, His sovereign plan is awesome. And yet at the same time, this is the result of corrupt, sinful people and the warped worldviews that they had. I want to present to you three different exhibits this morning. Exhibit A, the chief priests and the scribes. Now, we've talked about these guys before. Mark writes, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. These religious leaders knew that arresting Jesus during this, the feasts that were going on, the celebration of Passover, when Jerusalem is swelling with people who have come to celebrate, this is not the best time to do this. We should probably avoid it. We should probably keep it very, very quiet. We know we need to do it, but we need to do it quietly, lest we have some type of uprising on our hands. Their hearts compelled them, even then they knew there was an element of danger here. To them, Jesus was a threat. To them, Jesus was an enemy. Though they claimed to be all about loving God and doing all the things that God wanted them to do and leading other people to worship God, what they were really doing was something more along the lines of self-loving, pocket-lining, ego-boosting, power-grabbing, and it was all a racket they had going on. Being fully human for them, making the most out of their existence, it was all about self-promotion, it was all about self-superiority, it was all about self-righteousness, it was all about self-advancement. Let's grab up as much as we can for ourselves, for our lives, and let's show the world just how good we really are. And look at this, look at our clothing, look at the money we have, look at everything. Isn't this evidence that God is blessed? us. We're the ones who are going to go down in the history books as having done it right. Jesus had gotten in the way of that. He was getting all the attention. He was exposing them for the frauds that they truly were. And worst of all, he wasn't recognizing the super special place that they thought they had in God's kingdom. For that, he needed to be eliminated does the same thing happen today? Many of us, and I mean many of the human race, we become so consumed with pursuing self-awareness. So consumed with self-actualization, with self-promotion, with self-esteem. And it's become so much of a part of the way we think that that any thought of God, or any authority figure for that matter, that's going to tell us who we should be, or what we should think, or what we should do, well, that's not a welcome thought. We don't want that. When my life becomes so much about me, 
Well, the idea of God or Jesus or anyone who's going to tell me what to do, well, I identify them now as the enemy. They're here to hurt me. They're here to make me less human than I should be. And either I need to find a way to dismiss Jesus as some type of irrelevant idea from the ancient past, or I need to transform him into somebody who gets on board and affirms what I want to do and who I want to be. And we see that happening. It's happening. We live in a day and age where people more and more who claim to know and love Jesus, they've massaged his words and they've redacted his teaching. They've forsaken what he came to accomplish. They're doing exactly what the chief priests and the scribes were attempting to do with God's law. What was intended to draw humanity back to its creator, back to what it was intended for, is being used to justify humanity's wandering away, further and further away from God. What was meant to open our eyes to the darkness in our hearts and our need for forgiveness and for transformation, it's being misrepresented to make our twisted ways appear straight. And the stench of our depravity have the scent of righteousness. We claim that we are more and more authentically human than we've ever been in any other time in history when the reality is that we are as far away from God as we have ever been. And this can happen to the church. This can happen to me and it can happen to you. Here's a good way to check up on ourselves. If we read the Bible and we come away with anything other than a profound awe for the goodness and holiness and sovereignty of God, as well as a deep awareness of our own sinfulness and our inadequacy and our need for dependence on the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, then we may be seeing God's Word through the warped lens of self-worship. Exhibit A. Exhibit B. The Inside Man. Skip down to verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money and sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, unlike the rest of the disciples, Judas Iscariot was not from the region of Galilee. He's from about 25 miles south of Jerusalem. And though he walked among the other disciples, his motives for following Jesus were most likely very, very different from the rest of the disciples. For him, following Jesus was about personal gain. For him, following, following Jesus was about coming out on top. Jesus was a means to an end. Judas most likely believed, like every other Jew at the time, that Jesus was, if he was the Messiah, well then he was going to be the man who was going to restore Israel to its former glory. He was going to transform it into this unsurpassed, never-ending superpower. And so following Jesus meant winning. 
How do we know that Judas' motives were self-centered? Well, John tells us that Jesus knew what was going on in his heart. John 6, 64, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. In John 12, we see that while he was following Jesus during Jesus' ministry, that he was out only for personal gain. John 12, verse 4 says this, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Is it possible? Is it possible that some of us have chosen to follow Jesus to enhance our lives rather than to turn from our old sinful desires to be washed clean and be all about God's purposes. Is that possible? Is it possible that sometimes people go to church because of how it makes them feel and because well, this is where some social needs are met. Is it possible, could it be, that some turn to Jesus because they think that he's going to help them live their best life now? Is our trust in him dependent on how he seems to be getting rid of all of our problems, making our lives better, or helping us find material prosperity? Here's a way to check ourselves. When we pray, when you pray, are we praying mainly for health and wealth and happiness and prosperity and that we might do well on that test or at this thing at work, that he would fix this relationship or that or make our lives generally better, or are we confessing, first and foremost, confessing our sin to him? Are we praising God for who he is? Are we pleading? I was talking with a former student just last night. He's pleading for God to make him holy and to purify his mind. For the past two years, he's been pleading so that others might see the work that Christ is doing in him and be in awe of who God is. Exhibit C, a woman with a jar. Now we're flashing back to verse 3. We skipped ahead to verse 10. Now we're flashing back to verse 3. And as we do, it's probably important that we note that Mark is actually flashing back right here. You see, what he begins to tell us in verses 1 and 2, he presses pause all of a sudden, and then he has a flashback to several days earlier, in fact, on Saturday, when Jesus first came into Bethany. 
Why does he do that? I think one of the reasons might be because he wants us to see the contrast between those who have been consumed with these distorted worldviews. The contrast between that and a woman who sees her world in super high definition. Listen to what he describes. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, now Simon the leper was probably a leper whom Jesus had healed, and now he's having Jesus and his whole crew over for a celebratory or thank you dinner. And while he was at the And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask, poured it over his head. Now we know something about this woman. We know that she's not just a woman. We know her name. Mark doesn't mention her name. Maybe it's because he doesn't want to distract us with those details. But nevertheless, we know from John's gospel that this was none other than Mary, the sister of Martha, and the sister of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So we know that Mary knows exactly who Jesus is. There's no doubt in her mind who Jesus is. She had experienced it firsthand when she saw Jesus demonstrate that he has the power over death and the grave. That's awesome and amazing. All hope was lost for her and her sister. Jesus, if you had only come sooner, you may have been able to do something, but now... And Jesus did it. She had sat at Jesus' feet. She had listened to him. Her sister was busy about doing things around the house, getting food ready, doing whatever it was. She sits there, and she's just listening to Jesus, listening to him speak. And her sister says, what did she do? Make her help me. Jesus says, no, 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 no. She's doing the more important thing, the better thing. And Mary comes out this time with this jar. This alabaster flask. Now, the jar itself probably had some, some value to it. Most of these types of jars, they were made of Egyptian marble. They were very meticulously, very intricately, ornately carved. So the jar itself would have probably been of some value. The perfume that it contained was also costly. It was an oil that had been extracted from a plant that it has its origins in northern India. So it was, it was expensive stuff. But not only was it this oil, it was pure, a pure version of this oil. So it was probably even of greater value. The disciples knew exactly how valuable it was. When they object to what Mary was doing in verse 5, they say it's worth more than 300 denarii. Whoa, that's a lot of money, isn't it? That's about a year's wages. How much do you make in a year? Or how much did you make in a year? Have you ever bought some perfume? Have you ever spent that much money on perfume? Have you ever spent that much money on a jar of anything? Oh my goodness. If you have, we can talk after. All right? I'll pray for you. A year's salary? This is insane. What's going through her head? 
Mary, what have you done? You've lost your marbles as well as your most priceless possession. Why would you do that? I think that we have to ask too, why would she have that? She has a jar of something? Mary has a jar of something that's worth it? This is amazing. What a, what a possession you have. Maybe this was a family heirloom that was passed down and down and down for generation and generation. They just hold on to it. Maybe there's someone who's wealthy back in the past, and this is their treasured thing, and they keep it in their secret, special, locked place. Maybe this was her dowry. Maybe her father had set this aside, and this was so that she could marry well. Mary could marry well someday. Or maybe this was for when she, her time came and she was going to die. And it would be used to anoint her body. In any case, Mary's future, and maybe the future of her family, was wrapped up in it. It was contained within this bottle that she had. This was her worth. This was her hope. This was likely everything that she had, the best shot she had at a meaningful life, maybe a respectable death. And she comes in. And I don't think this was like ice bucket challenge, right? It's just like, here, Jesus! <laughs> but I think reverently, she comes in and brings the bottle, and she breaks it in pieces. And the oil comes pouring out all over. She could have just poured a few drops. I mean, just take the little, okay, it smells good. She dumps the whole thing over 300 denarii to us, tens of thousands of dollars gone in an instant down the drain. John 12, 3 tells us, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Now, this whole thing to us here in 2021 in Southern California, this is, this is a strange thing. What is she doing here? And yet, in that cultural context, and having been well-versed in Scripture, and Scripture talks a lot about anointing with oil, I don't think that would have been so much the strange part for everyone who was hanging out at the table there in the room. But what was puzzling and, and, and disturbing to those who were watching this event take place was the fact that Mary would do something so ridiculous as to waste something of such great value. It just doesn't make sense. They protest. Mark says they scolded her. How could you do such a thing? Don't you have, Mary, don't you have some cheaper stuff in the cupboard from CVS? Come on, just bring that out. We already mentioned Judas was the most vocal. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, about to betray him. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii given to the poor? And he said it not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. Their worldview, Judas' worldview, the disciples' worldview, everyone's worldview was shaken in that moment. And Mary had single-handedly turned everything upside down. In Judas' mind, well, this money could have been set aside and, well, he could have taken a little bit for himself here and there so that no one would have noticed. 
and bought himself some nice things. No doubt the rest of the disciples, they had more pure motives here. We thought, Jesus, we were all about helping other people. I mean, you're going around, you're healing people, you're teaching people, you're feeding people. We're taking care of people's needs. We thought we were all about meeting those needs. Shouldn't this have been sold? We could have met so many more needs. Could have made people's lives better here. Isn't that a good thing? And Jesus responds by saying, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. You always have the poor with you. And whatever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. Does that mean that Jesus doesn't care about the, the poor? No, it doesn't mean that. In fact, he's, he's referencing here a passage in Deuteronomy where God tells his people, uh, for their will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. Not only did God recognize that there are always going to be people out there in need, they're going to be impoverished people, but he gave this unending, this enduring command to his people to care for those who are in need. It's standard operation. It's what you do. And there are various provisions marked out in Scripture for them to do that. But what Jesus is getting at here is that there is something of even greater importance. There's something of even higher significance that life is all about. And one of the more noble and moral things that continues on our planet, even today, is when people give to those in need. It's, it's, it's great. Christians do it. Non-Christians do it. People who have stacks and stacks of money and those who have very little money, they're doing it. And they're giving to those who have less. Now, some do it and they're looking for recognition. And they unashamedly dole out their money and say, look at this charity I gave to. For others, they're even doing a better thing. And they're doing it kind of on the sly. No one needs to know about this. I just want to help people. It's a good thing. It's a more right thing for sure than hoarding up all your money and using it on yourself. And yet, if that is your worldview and it's telling you that that makes you a good person, a whole person, a more fully human or humane person, it's incomplete. Because if Mary would have taken her fancy jar and she put it up on eBay and she sold it for a ton of money, gave all the proceeds to the poor and thought that she reached level 10 on the good human scale, she would have been wrong. No, what she did was superior to that. What she did, Jesus said, was what she could. And what she could was greater than some and lesser than some others, but it was likely the most precious thing that she had to offer. Her whole future was probably wrapped up in this. And she pours it all out in worship to Jesus. I'd like to propose this morning that you and I, 
and those who were out in the parking lot, and those who were outside, and those who were online, that you and I are never more fully human, never more fully living out your purpose, your calling, and that there's nothing more significant that you could ever be doing than when you have completely lost yourself in awe and worship of Jesus. Nothing. Missionary Jim Elliott wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot gain, or cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. As we've already mentioned, Jesus said, Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We have worldviews in our in our world that are being pushed on us all around that say that the key to being fully human is to find yourself. It is to express yourself. It is to enhance yourself. Grab up for yourself. Enjoy yourself. Be yourself. Stand up for yourself. Defend yourself. Force others to affirm yourself. When all along you were designed by your Creator to forget yourself. Designed by your Creator to forget yourself as you bask in the awesome splendor and beauty and infinite worth of your Creator. As Mary sat there drenching Jesus' head and His feet with this most precious thing in her possession, she acknowledged there's nothing greater to her than the surpassing worth of Jesus. And the great and powerful and the rich and famous will laugh and they will scoff at those who make stupefying decisions to waste their life on a man from an ancient and irrelevant book when they could be living it up pursuing their dreams, making sure that the world knows their name. The educated, they will wag their heads when they see parents urging their children to steer clear of the Ivy League and prestigious centers of education for the sake of keeping their bodies and their minds and their souls faithful and pure and fit and ready for their master's use. The pleasure seekers, They'll make fun of those who devote themselves to one husband or one wife. And the independent and career-minded, well, they will say it's crazy to keep that baby and devote the best years of your life to someone who's just going to suck the life out of you. The weekend warriors, the adventure seekers, will not understand why anyone would devote their day off to gathering with a bunch of people to sing songs, to pray, to listen to some guy get all hot and bothered talking about a book that is over 2,000 years old. What a waste, they'll say. How foolish, they'll say. What is she thinking, they will say. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. There are a lot of people out there who think that they are making much of their lives. They're seeking to make a difference. They're seeking to make their mark, live life to its fullest, be all that they can be. And yet here is a woman who will go down in history and on 
remembered on into eternity for what she did. (laughs) When kings and presidents and philanthropists and billionaires and explorers and influencers have all come and gone, are dead and forgotten, this woman will be remembered. I think the takeaway is this. Those who have forgotten themselves for the sake of Christ will never be forgotten. Those who have forgotten themselves for the sake of Christ will never be forgotten. You may or may not be familiar with a man by the name of Charles Thomas Studd, C.T. Studd, lived back at the end of the 1800s and early 1900s. He was a British man who was destined to inherit an incredible fortune. This is his childhood home. Not too bad. I would not want to be the gardener there. Uh, But wow, this guy had it all. Growing up, he was living the dream. He went to Cambridge, phenomenal cricket player, something we all aspire to be. He had everything a young Brit could wish for. He made it. And yet he left everything to go bring the gospel to the far reaches of China and later Africa. And while he was in China, he found out that his, he received news that his father had passed away. He inherited the fortune. Oh my gosh, wealth, unimaginable wealth. I am now the king of the castle. And very quickly, we're told that he took that money and he dispersed it out to various Christian organizations and missionaries. He kept a little back, not for himself. He saved it for his wife. And when word got to her about what he had done, she was furious. But she wasn't furious that he had given all the rest of the fortune away. She was furious that he kept anything back for her. She said something like this, Do you think that Jesus can't look after me like he looks after you? Give my money away as well. And they gave it away to establish the Salvation Army in India. What was going on with these people? What was going through their heads? Were they nuts? No. They just had a clearer understanding of what the human life was all about. Stud wrote a little poem. You may be familiar with it. The verse goes like this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I like what Alistair Begg has said. At the end of the day, it's not what you say about yourself that matters. It's not even what others say about you that matters. At the end of the day, it's only what God says about you that matters. Will your life matter? Let's forget ourselves as we bask in the awesome light of our Maker. Forget ourselves. Lose it all for the sake of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? That sounds crazy, what you just did. But it's good, and it's right. And this is what we were made for from the very beginning.
Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And I'm not even sure what else to say. You have rescued us from bad thinking, from self-worship and worship of all kinds of other inferior things that do not last. And you have brought us back to yourself who we're always meant to be fascinated with and marvel at and enjoy fully, Lord. Thank you for Jesus who opened our eyes to the truth. And thank you that each and every day, Lord, you draw us closer to yourself and you give us an opportunity to recognize just a little bit more of who you are and how awesome it is to know you, to worship you, to love you. May our lives, may we count our lives as nothing and give them fully to you, just like this lady, Mary, who gave her all to love and worship Jesus. That's what we want our lives to be. Would you take us? Let them be used for you and your glory and the good of your people, we pray in Christ's name. And everyone says, amen.